0: You are listening to the Catholic Recon podcast, testimonies from Catholic reverts and converts. I'm your host, Eddie Trask. Don't forget to leave a review and enjoy this week's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Catholic Recon, testimonies from reverts and converts. I'm your host, Eddie Trask. And before I get into this week's Episode. I want to remind you to subscribe and to comment. Uh, I could probably do a better job of commenting myself. I know that that helps. But anyway, please do so. Uh, This week's guest is Leah Sargent. Leah, first of all, thank you for being uh, willing to be on the show. I really appreciate that. I want to tell you all about Leah just a little bit. She has two books. Um, One is called Arriving at Amen, Seven Catholic Prayers That Even I Can Offer which tells the story of how she learned to pray. And then she also has a book called Building the Benedict Option, which is focusing on building better Christian community. She has spoken on CNN, theology on taps in multiple countries, and Chicago Ideas Week, et cetera, right? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So excellent. Yeah, Leah, I think I first heard about you on the CNN segment. Is that still up? I think I had trouble. I think so. I think okay. so. All right. If I, I'm not
1: in charge of CNN, so I have no idea.
0: But yeah, I didn't know if you checked and saw, but I know that that was um, a few years ago when I was considering reverting to the Catholic faith. That was one of the videos that popped up. Oh, I, don't, wow. I, I was not an atheist, but it did appear in my feed. But anyway, if you could, please take us to uh, the beginning of your journey. And uh, I know the listeners would, would love to hear. Well, I grew up in
1: Long Island, where most people I knew were non-religious. In my particular high school, most people were non-observant Jews. But in practice, I don't think I knew anyone who I knew believed in God, with one exception, I suppose, which is that when I was in AP European history, we were learning about the Reformation, and a kid raised their hand to say, so do Lutherans still exist? (laughs) And this kid like spoke up and went like, yes, they do, I'm a Lutheran. And we're like, really? Yeah. So to that's a very brilliant. large extent, my I knew that there were Christians out there. I knew that there was Greg the Lutheran in my social studies class. So I hadn't interrogated him about, you know, his level of commitment. Um, but my experience and exposure with Christians mostly came through moments where Christianity was either politicized or felt like it might personally impinge on my life. And that's certainly not a very good witness to begin with
0: yeah so (laughs) that's not a strong witness at all but what makes me laugh is in history class when I was in high school something similar happened where it, it wasn't a Lutheran but in fact it was someone acting it was a question based on the fact that that is so ancient so what what is in it for me now? It was kind of mm-hmm. the, the question and the teacher was taken aback and I don't even remember how she answered, but it was very awkward. I'll just say that. So I'm sure she was practicing something. At the time, you know, I was an altar server. I kind of just kept my mouth mm-hmm. shut. But um, so then what what progressed after that? I mean, that's one very distinct moment, clearly.
1: Well, I was, I was interested in the new atheism, which was kind of on an upswing at the time. So that's Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, etc. But, you know, even though they were fighting pretty hard against religion or against the ways they felt it was contaminating the public sphere, to a certain extent, it felt like a battle that was on the cusp of being won. So even as an atheist, I didn't care as much about stopping religious people, though I did to an extent. I cared about what came after that, you know, in high school, you know, even before I knew Christians, I knew that not christian was not an ideology or a way to order your life as an atheist telling you i was an atheist didn't tell you what i did believe or how i lived so as an atheist growing up i would have told you both that i was an atheist and that i was a stoic deontologist right because no one is ever just an atheist i cared a lot about how to live i think that's really the through line through my whole experience i knew that it really mattered to live well to inquire into the moral law and be sure you had a good understanding of it. And where I started was this idea of deontology, that I wanted to start with understanding what the right thing to do was. And that wasn't just a matter of looking at what would happen next, a kind of consequentialism and saying, okay, well, what will happen if I lie a little? Will that be helpful on net? Does that mean I can lie? I cared about what's true all the time and in all places and for all people. And deontology takes that approach. It says, whatever you're doing, can you will it as a universal law? You know, so even if I'm like, well, my lying is helpful now. If I will lying, lying itself becomes meaningless. You need a world where truth telling is the norm for lying to work. So that's, that's what I was interested in going into college. And to an extent, you know, I came into college. Not so much just wanting to be an evangelist for atheism, which is again the negation of something, but an evangelist for stoic deontology, uh, which you know, there are fewer people coming to your door like Jehovah's Witnesses say, Excuse me, excuse me, have you heard about Immanuel Kant? But yes. that was me.
0: Yes, that's right. And so, and then Aquinas took Kant's theory and took it further and said, Okay, you're just looking at, okay, you did the right thing, good on you. And then Aquinas said, Now, Do you desire to do the right thing and take it to that that extra step? But I'm glad that you said that because a lot of atheists will get characterized as they simply don't care. And it's it's this weird paradigm that doesn't really exist because there are many atheists that are after that, like you just said. Mm -hmm. So in college, as you're progressing, did you meet others like you or was it more...
1: I met a lot of weirdos, you know, so in that sense, people like me and that I came in as a very opinionated weirdo, right? Sure, but then sure. I met weirdos who were also Christians. So I, I joined a debate group in my, when I became a freshman and it was an unusual debate group because you may be thinking of something like a debate team where people are assigned to sides randomly and yeah. to an extent the, the discipline of debate is about how well can you construct any argument and defend it. And that wasn't what we did. We thought that was, you know, like playing with matches, right? You don't argue for any idea. What if you convince someone of something that was wrong? So we argued for things we thought were true uh, twice a week, often very late at night. Being, you know, a pretty big range of what people thought was true. We had kind of mainstream Democrats and Republicans. Then we had people who wanted to be seasteaders, living, you know, a very libertarian life on boats with the ability to leave anytime they disagreed with the governing flotilla. We had people who were monarchists. And most relevantly to me, you know, I was meeting people who were Christian and serious about it and very smart and interested in fielding questions, which wasn't what I had pictured Christians being like. And more than even just being Christians, you know, some of these people were converts. So there's no excuse of they haven't grown out of it yet. They've made a deliberate choice. Some of them were even math majors, right? So I knew these were people who cared about truth. Uh, you don't get a more truth-seeking discipline than mathematics. or No kidding.
0: One. No kidding. So were you seeing a number of, you were seeing Protestants and Catholics at that time?
1: I was seeing Protestants and Catholics. So I'd say the people who made the biggest impression on me were often the Catholics and the people who were Eastern Orthodox. Okay. And I think there were two reasons for that. There's more of a systematic thinking in those schools of theology. Got uh, there's a long history and tradition. People who have a real rich sense of history it's less even tied or warped by whatever the current controversy du jour is yes and both religions or both denominations really have a really strong hatred for schism which was something i didn't always see in protestantism which didn't make sense to me from the outside but you know what catholicism often gets kind of a bad rap for the way it doesn't tolerate dissent past a certain yes. point yes you know, people say that's dictatorial you can't tell people what to believe people can follow their own consciences but again you'd never let a mathematician do that you know, when you're talking about what's true yeah. there's a limit to how far you can push it before you've pushed it into something that's false and once you introduce something that's false you can't keep going from that point you have to be able to rewind adjudicate that dispute and only move forward together. So even as an atheist, the more I argued with my friends, the more I saw something that was more like what I thought of at the heart of philosophy, at the heart of mathematics, at the heart of any discipline where you're the steward of a truth, then you have to be careful about deviations from that truth and have to be careful about how you explore. It's not for you to add things onto it. It's for you to carefully see what else out there is
0: true. Exactly. And if you don't rein it in, again, even if it's viewed as authoritarianism, uh, if you don't rein it in, well, then you see the fruit of exponential schism, as as we've seen. So at what point did you start to blog? I know that that was a big, that was a big thing for you. It must
1: have been one of the summers that I was in college, because to an extent, you know, we were all starting blogs at that point, as much to keep in touch with each other and just keep arguing all summer as for the wider world. My blog happened to get picked up a bit more because I was arguing about religion. And you know, on both sides of the question, people are very excited to argue about religion on the internet. Just a little bit, yeah. But I wasn't the only one among my friends. To a certain extent, it was a way of just turning whatever you were thinking about into a conversation and getting to profit off of what other people were bringing or the questions they brought to you. So I really enjoyed that. I still do it, not so much as a blogger, but on Substack, which is sort of the successor to blogs, um, where I write a Substack called Other Feminisms, where again, I benefit from not only getting to digest my own thoughts, but hearing thoughtful, invested questions from people who are interested in a good conversation.
0: Got it. So when you were going, so you're getting all these comments, I'm sure on the blog and you're having to field, like you said, all these questions and you're learning how to debate. Did it take quite a while to, to get to a point where you felt like, whoa, my thinking is really shifting. And would you say that it was starting to shift because of how calm and collected some of the people were that were representing Christianity?
1: (laughs) I mean, they weren't, they weren't calm. They were, you know, people who want to be up till 2 a.m. debating right so they were interesting they were sustained interlocutors calm and normal are not words i would use to describe these okay, particular okay, people okay not calm um,
0: but, and, but and obviously consistent is, were they consistent let's say that yes
1: yes and i think this is part of you know, for the benefit of now as a christian the way that god seeks each of us in the way that we might be willing to recognize him you know there are certainly people who are better evangelized through kind of a calm loving, quiet, receptive witness. And then there's me, who was best evangelized by folks who would come up to you after debate and go, I thought your speech was really wrong. Do you want to have coffee? Also, I think you'd like this book. <laughs> um, and I don't, I don't think Catholics should take that approach to everyone in their life. But I think we kind of see you know, both the diversity of gifts within the church, that that was the gift that I needed as an invitation, and God's willingness to seek us wherever we are. Now, in my case, one thing that helped a lot was those book recommendations. So I kind of had an initial shift that came through two books to begin with. And they were C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, which was kind of did the most for me of making Christianity seem like something that might be reasonable, um, something that wasn't incoherent, inconsistent, something that couldn't be rejected out of hand, in the way I think a lot of the new atheists think it can be. I think that's partly because they're often talking about The lowest common denominator of American evangelicalism, where you have a lot of contradictory parts of the theology, a lack of systematic theology, a lack of a magisterium, a lack of a way to steward the truth. But Lewis's mere Christianity really makes the case, you know, you can reject this, you can find it to be untrue, but you can't reject it out of hand and you can't reject it as laughably untrue. There's a real rigor and internal consistency here. And I was moved by that even though I didn't accept it, but it meant meant Christianity would take more work to unravel is how I thought of it. Because I cared about my friends and just like they wanted me to be Catholic or Orthodox, I wanted them to be atheist. I wanted us all to live in the truth together. And Lewis taught me that that wasn't a trivial thing to talk someone out of being a Christian. There wasn't an easy weak link there.
0: Got it. And uh, I know you're going to mention the other book um, with the mansion analogy and mere Christianity. Did that resonate with you early on? That really did for me. Again, I raised Catholic and I'm in this period where I'm really confused and I'm going back in time and trying to make sense of all this. I found mere Christianity and it hit me. Okay. There are these different rooms representing different denominations. Did that resonate with you? Not-
1: not as much, but I wasn't starting from the perspective of being a Christian and wrestling with the different denominations. You know, yeah. I was starting with the question of, is there anything to Christianity?
0: Got it. Yep. So the, the second other book, book was yeah. GK
1: Chesterton's Orthodoxy. <laughs> and I feel like if Lewis is kind of You know, you picture him as this Don who's a welcoming presence, you know, prone to go talk this over with you at the pub in a calm way, kind of what you were talking about, Mm -hmm. you know, saying this is actually pretty reasonable, you know, you don't have to check your brain at the door to be a Christian. This is, you know, not alien to other kinds of logic and truth that you know, I can kind of explain this coherently. G.K. Chesterton is someone who just bursts in the window, like head first and goes, but actually it's all pretty nuts, really. And, and I appreciate having both of these because this does speak to both parts of what's true about Christianity. There's a lot you can defend intellectually. And yep. there's a lot of objections that really don't hold up. But on the other hand, it's not just, oh, this is an interesting hypothesis. Let's turn it over in a dispassionate way. Chesterton's right. Christianity is pretty wild. You know, it makes huge claims about what's true, how to live your life. It's got, he would often say, paradox at the center of it, you know, God and man, mercy and justice. And we're right to think that those concepts lie uneasily alongside each other, that those concepts kind of meshing together is something that goes beyond what we ourselves can do. It takes God to make that make any sense at all. And I appreciated that because Chesterton is often saying, look, you know, you can say there seems like there's some parts that are reasonable at Christianity but you can never leave it there because the claims are so big and hinge so much on whether they're true that once you take them seriously you have two choices you can become a christian and build your whole life around this or you can build your life around stomping christianity out because if it's true it's the most marvelous truth you know and it has to inform your whole life and if it's false it's the most horrendous and disgusting lie you know so pick which is it
0: that's that's very well said so you read these two books first of all were there any other like protestant i mean obviously c.s lewis protestant but were there (laughs) any we always
1: tend to try and grandfather him in. i heard what you were doing there
0: yeah he's ours anyway um were there evangelical books that were handed to you as well or you're just saying these were two that stood out among many These are
1: the two that stood out. You know, I read a lot of articles and had a lot of arguments but these are the two that kind of each marked a turning point in how I thought about what Christianity was and what claims it
0: was making. Got it. Got it. And after that period, after you had digested those books, was there a moment you close it? Because I've heard many people say this. They finish a book and they say, that's it. I'm becoming Catholic. Did you Not yet. And, yeah, you said that's it. I'm gonna keep researching. Is no, I
1: had a good? big bookshelf, right? But I only had three books. I think played a pivotal role, um, and the third one was Alistair mcintyre's After Virtue, because I told you that what I was thinking about in terms of what I was trying to invite other people into was this deontological view of the world. Yes. Yes. This, what are the rules? How do I follow them? And the After Virtue really puts forward a slightly different view of what virtue is. It's a discussion both of the history of ethics, kind of some of the reasons we have trouble speaking to each other now. But for me, it was most powerful as an explanation of virtue ethics themselves. And here's how I draw the distinction, at least as it was most relevant for me. Deontology is really founded in how do I find my duty and do it no matter how hard it is. And so to an extent, it's easy to slip into a mindset there where it's better to do good to people who are cruel to me than people who are kind, because when I'm kind in response to kindness, that's just a natural feeling. I get no credit for it. I want to do it. When I'm kind to people who are cruel, I'm working against myself. You have the sense of effort to overcome your impulses, to follow your duty despite your desires. And I, w- I was really into that, as including as a high schooler. I was a weird high schooler, so to an extent, an ethical foundation of being kind to people in high school who aren't kind to you is like very motivating, um, but it meant to an extent I regretted people's kindness towards me, because the kinder people were, the better my life was, the less opportunity I had to be a really good person, to overcome my lack of desire to do good for others uh, by being kind to those who were not kind to me. Virtue ethics takes a very different view. If, Deontology can lead you to think that the truly virtuous woman is someone who's almost walking into a headwind, bowed over with effort, working against herself. Virtue ethics says ultimately doing good should be easy. Not at the start, but it should be something where you do good so much that it becomes part of yourself, that your desires are totally unified with the good you're never working against yourself in, you know, kind of the perfect form, whether someone's kind to you or whether someone's cruel to you. Kindness is so much a part of yourself. It flows out naturally. You don't have that sense of the headwind. It's more like the way a dancer walks, even when she's not on stage or not performing, that there's a unity to the way her whole body moves that can make just crossing the street lovely because the whole body moves as one unit with one will, which is, to be clear, not how I cross the street. I have, you know, less gracefulness physically than that. But I hadn't thought of moral gracefulness as an option in that way. I was really moved by the book. I brought it to a friend and I said, well, you know, I've been looking for a good atheist track to hand people. And I know this is like 400 pages long, but this is it. Like, this is how I want to live. And my friend said, well, you know, the author Alistair McIntyre, became Catholic, right? I was so mad, you know, I thought, you know, he'd abandoned this great atheist project to become Catholic. And I really thought of it a bit at that point as my job to carry on the work of atheist Alistair McIntyre that he had left to become Catholic Alistair McIntyre.
0: Did you view him when you heard that? Did you say, oh, that's fascinating? Or did you say, wow, he must have been lost at a certain point? And he I was just, just
1: mad. I just was just succumbed. mad. You're giving to me more credit point. for like a, a coherent response. I was just angry. <laughs> that
0: yeah. I felt well, let
1: down by him personally.
0: Yeah, exactly. I, I get that. So when you're talking about the the virtue ethics, you know, another way that I understand it would be, so you're so fixed on what is good and, and true, that no matter what comes to you from the outside, you're, you're set, you know what yes. I mean? You're so fixed on that. You're not just flip-flopping all the time. You know what your goal is. So therefore it makes it much easier to respond to people that are doing things that are cruel and, and hateful and things like that.
1: I'd say even less than, you know, what your goal is just, you know, who you are. Okay. There's that, there's that line from uh, Gerald Martinley Hopkins, you know, just the just man justices, that who you are is justice, you just keep acting in that way. There's almost a lack of intentionality at a certain point. You know, I don't think about breathing, I breathe. Um, to a certain extent, you know, it's not that it's bad to mull things over or make ethical choices, but we do that a bit because we're unsure or we're torn in different directions. And the more unified your will is with the good, the less active willing you're doing, the more exactly. you've just tutored your
0: will. Well, you've, you've built such strong habits that you're not thinking about the choice that is happening in that moment. And,
1: and to yeah. an extent, the other options just don't look attractive, right? We don't walk yeah. through the world and try and eat things that aren't food constantly.
0: Yeah. Fair point. Okay. So after you realize Alistair did what he did and you're angry, what was the next step?
1: Well, so this is where I started to have a problem, perhaps a problem similar to that of Alistair McIntyre. The construction of virtue ethics is a teleological construction, it is aimed at a goal, like you were saying. It's aimed at the sense of you are who you should be, you are you know, the full expression of yourself, the, you're following your telos. And the question is where is this coming from it was easier for me to talk about how morality worked in a deontological framework because to a certain extent you can treat it like a logic puzzle i can will everything i can will universally and i can just kind of check like i said with the lying is it coherent for me to will lying sometimes no all right well then lying is out but you can't quite get there as easily in virtue ethics, because now I'm not just talking about duty or universalized I'm saying there's something about being human that points to a particular way of being that is natural, but hard for us, you know, and I'm trying to make that natural thing easy for me, you know, taking who I am and fully being it. The question is, what are you talking about? You know, where is the sense of being human coming from? And how do you know it's good? Where does it align with the good? Because- I was enough of a scientist to know that evolution is not the answer to where do we get our sense of ethics from. Evolution focuses on things that are stable and self-perpetuating, but many things that are wicked are self-perpetuating you know, or neutral, but you know not related to the good. So that's not the sense of where I know, how I know the good. It's not because it happens to work out or it happens to further my genes. It's too circumstantial. So really the question I was struggling with, and this starts to be around where I graduate from college with a problem. Um, I had my atheism, which had nothing in it that wasn't true, but couldn't yet explain all the things I needed it to explain. Okay. So you could think of it as kind of like a patchwork sale. It had some big rents in it that I hadn't figured out how to mend or how to fill. It had like little bits and pieces that fit together awkwardly, but you know, not unreasonably. And it wasn't quite big enough to really catch the wind and get me where I needed to go. But I'm 22. So I didn't think of this as a, a horrendous problem, just more of a thing I had to keep working on.
0: Well, I wonder if there's such a thing for atheists. Um, you know, they often will accuse Christians as God of the gaps arguments like, okay, there's a void, fill it, have faith, good to go. Is there a no God of the gaps on? the atheism side, in a sense? Or is well, it more of a, I don't know, a dissonance that starts to happen? I don't know.
1: This kind of gets to the question of what's good about hypocrisy, right? What's good about saying, I have two impulses lying alongside each other. I have two things I think might be true and I'm not sure how to resolve them. Sure. And this came up a lot in our debate group. And for the most part, I think the best thing to do, both in terms of honesty and in terms of eventually resolving this tension is to say, I have two things that I know can't both be true, but I don't know how to pick yet. And you know, you can try and say, where will I find opportunities to push on this or to test it? But you don't really gain anything from saying, I know I shouldn't believe contradictory things so I'm going to pick at random or I'm sure. going to pretend there isn't a contradiction. And that's where I was. I knew what I had was incomplete. I wasn't going to pretend it was complete, but I wasn't going to throw it out, you know, when everything I had in it seemed to be true. You can't do better starting from a blank slate necessarily.
0: Yeah, that makes perfect sense, okay.
1: Now, when it came to Christianity, which I was still pushing on, it felt more like, whereas I had this like sloppy patchwork mess thing for my atheism as virtue ethics, Christianity now, the more I'd read about it, looked like this complicated clockwork mechanism, You know, very beautiful, I could see how it fit together, precision gears, right? But it wasn't on. And it had no way to go. So it looked like, and I kind of gave it credit for just having attracted some of the smartest people over thousands of years to think through it, that people had kind of ironed out a lot of the internally contradictory parts. It all fit together well. It was coherent. If it were true, it would work. But if it weren't true, you can't live by it. And that was kind of the the tension I had after college.
0: And so was there a, I, I, I always think in terms of marketing, and I've mentioned this before, like the impressions of so those books were one impression, um, different debates you had were another impression. Was there a moment and how soon after college, was there a moment, a person, a, an article that really, you said you start to recognize how beautiful this is. Was there something that said full acceptance or was it still just little bits at a time you know what I mean
1: there was there wasn't so much a an initial moment of full acceptance much as a weird moment from my point of view which is that I went back up for an alumni debate and I'm seeing my friends and we're having a debate and then I had this weird feeling during the debate it wasn't a debate about religion you know people who were Catholic could be on either side of the specific question we were debating but I felt like if you came into the room and knew nothing about religion, if you're just listening to how people argued, what they felt was important, what their kind of reasoning was, that you could still pick out the Catholics on either side of the issue, that they had the same sort of view of the human person, even if on this prudential question they disagreed about where that led them. They had more in common with each other than with people on the same side of the ostensible issue, and they made kind of a coherent group. But if you didn't know anything about religion and you were just trying to clump people in the room based on what they thought was true, you would definitely put me in the group. We were talking about the human person in the same way. And I thought this was weird. Um, i found it kind of unsettling. And after the debate, we were having a toasting session where we pass around a big cup full of many things, also among them alcohol, Mm -hmm. make toasts, you know, drink from the cup, pass it along, sing songs. And I had the impulse to toast the Nicene Creed and become a Christian, but this didn't make a lot of sense to me. And I kind of was, the cup's going around, I have to decide what I'm going to do. I'm thinking it through really fast. I'm like, okay, well, this seems kind of crazy because first of all, I don't think I know the Nicene Creed by heart and I'm not going to do it off my phone. Second, I think this is more of a weird debate culture thing to do. This is not actually how you become Christian. You become (laughs) Christian- You know, by being baptized, not by toasting the Nicene Creed. And if I were becoming Christian, I should become Christian in a Christian way, not in a weird debate way. And three, I don't believe in God. And really, three should have been one. So why didn't I get there first? And this is very troubling to me. And so you know, the cup comes around, I give some kind of very lousy toast, obviously, because I haven't had time to think of a good one. I don't toast the Nicene Creed. I don't become a Christian. And I go home and I'm troubled by it. And then Ultimately, you know, three or four months pass, and I'm back up for another alumni debate because we do four of them a year because we're crazy people. Wow. Yeah, now that I have kids, I'm not up there four times a year. But, you know, when I was younger and I could, I liked going. And I had another debate and it was resolved, nationalized the curriculum where, again, you can have Catholics on different sides of exactly how do we structure schools. But I had that same feeling of there's a clear unity among the Catholics and I'm part of it. And so I skipped toasting. I didn't want to go toasting because I thought I'd have the same weird Nicene Creed problem again. And I grabbed a friend of mine who I knew wanted to be uh, an Anglican priest. And I was like, Ben, like, I have the weird impulse to become Christian. So it's your job to talk to me and kind of grabbed him. And we both skipped toasting. And I wound up kind of laying out for him some of what I've laid out for you, that tension between the patchwork and the clockwork perfection that's dead. <laughs> And that tension of, I know I have knowledge of the good, but I can't articulate how I get there in the same way that I could when I was a deontologist. And we were kind of spending a while where I was, for much longer than I'm talking to you, kind of thrashing out with Ben, why I found it so hard to build a ladder up to morality, that morality is something transcendent, it's something that we uncover like archaeologists. It's not something we build like architects. And I had different ways of trying to explore, how do I have knowledge of something transcendent when I'm not transcendent? You know, Some of which relied more on Platonism, on kind of analogies of, well, can I, can I look at two unjust situations and realize what they have in common is injustice? You know, in the same way, I can look at two hands and two shoes and realize they have in common two-ness and get to these abstractions that way but I didn't really find that satisfactory. You know, I found that to be almost a, a fake argument I could put forward, it had the shape of an argument, but I knew it wasn't how I knew. And then I was stuck.
0: You didn't know where to go at that point. Oh, so so the friend that you were saying was thinking about becoming an Anglican priest? He is one now. He is he one just now. just ordained
1: this spring, yeah.
0: Are you serious? Okay. Yeah. So he's an Anglican priest, you're going through this, you still are stuck. Um, What was I gonna ask you about that? Oh, I forgot what I was gonna ask you about How, it. how
1: did I get unstuck?
0: Well, th- beyond that, it was something about the fact that, oh, was he this good friend of yours how did he at that moment how did he progress to get to that point was he formerly atheist as well and you're kind no, of no no he'd been on-
1: christian his whole life i just figured i could bother him because i knew he wanted to be a priest
0: got it got yeah it. okay and if he
1: didn't like being bothered by people you know in this way he should figure that out in college and not become a priest right
0: got it got it so how did you become unstuck how about that
1: well, what Ben said was just you're kind of going over the rut you've been in of these different ways of building a ladder that you don't think work. And rather than keep trying to make them work, you know, at the very least, try something different, whether it works or not. But I think you, you have to stop trying to work this solution. So just tonight, come up with something different to work on. And so when he said that, you know, I paused for a second, and then I said, well, I guess morality just loves me or something. And yeah, he made that face, that's the face he made, right? Like, um, and so I, even after I said it, I said, well, hang on, you know, let me see if I think that's true. But I did, you know, I had that problem of there's something transcendent that I can't build my way up to that I have. And so the question is, if I can't get there, what's the alternative? I could deny that I have it, but I know I do. Or it comes to me rather than me reaching up to grab it. Wow. I hadn't just, once you say that, it comes. I'm not talking about an abstract rule book, right? That's something that's inert. I'm talking about something that moves, that wills. I'm talking about an agent or a person, not just a thing. I'm talking about some kind of person that is goodness itself that comes to me, that lowers itself taking the form of a slave. I knew who I was talking about. You know, I'd certainly read enough at that point to realize to a certain extent, I was just describing the incarnation, just you know, the part of it I was most able to recognize.
0: <laughs> that is so well said. Very, very beautiful. Okay. So you have that moment, you have that epiphany. Do you join RCIA at that moment or do you consider like this is monumental I still need to take some time with it now I almost feel like Jordan Peterson the last time I heard where he was on his journey he was at this crossroads where he just said this is terrifying because there's also that it's so beautiful but then he's also looking at the cross as well so
1: well to a certain extent I've had a lot of the work Done for me ahead of time by just turning Christianity and Catholicism in particular over and over again till many of my possible objections had been answered ahead of time, just as Got it. is this coherent? Is this consistent? You know, I certainly wanted some space to sit with it before I told other people. But to a certain extent, once you believe something's true, you do believe it's true.
0: Mm-hmm. You can
1: say, I want to test this, I want to make sure I continue to believe it, I give myself a chance to hear objections but from the moment you believe something you do believe it. you know and that night was the night before palm sunday so i had the enormous gift of going to holy week that year you know as someone who believed that it was holy week rather than as someone who didn't even though rcia you know does give you that time to reflect to ask questions it wasn't until november that i was baptized
0: so did you Okay. So Holy Week's happening. How was that first moment? We didn't talk about this. Had you been to a Catholic mass for any reason?
1: I had, I had in college, I was dating a Catholic boy for a while. And so we had a deal where I went to mass with him on Sundays and he went to ballroom dance class with me. (laughs) So I was very familiar with mass. You know, I knew how it worked. I'd gone to it kind of as an anthropologist. Right. And it's very different to go as an observer versus as a participant, you know, even as a participant, who's not a communicant, Yep. It's so different to participate in prayer, knowing what's happening rather than observing what
0: people think is happening. Got it. So do you remember when, okay, here you are, you're returning to mass. Was that a big deal in that moment or was it?
1: Yes, because yeah. I you know, because I thought that was Jesus on the altar.
0: Wow. Amazing. And so six months pass or so, and then you're baptized. So you did not come into the church uh, at Easter Vigil, uh, like no, so. No, a very
1: years. nice Dominican sent me to a parish specifically that ran two cycles of an RCIA a year, so I wouldn't have to wait as long, which I'm very
0: grateful for. Got it, got it. So, what else can you say about that? That still just blows my mind. But you went on such an intellectual journey; it's unbelievable. Well,
1: so I think I think that is really the thing to say, which is that I yeah. believed I was Catholic, you know, but I didn't know how to be Catholic. That I'd spent all the time engaged with Christianity up till that point thinking about God as an intellectual proposition, as a series of arguments, and not knowing God as a person. So, you know, I can change my mind, but that doesn't change my habits or my friendship with God in that instance. So to a large extent, that first book of mine, Arriving at Amen, is about the conversion of the heart that follows the intellectual conversion. Because believing in God meant that I knew I had to, you know, create a relationship is almost too strong. He'd had one with me the whole time, but I had to learn to reciprocate the love he had already given me. And that's not something you can do in an evening any more than you can form a friendship just in one night. It's something that you have to keep learning and growing into. And in some ways, it's the thing I kind of regret most about my atheism, which is, to some extent, for a long time still, It's about, for me, making space for God, that I think of my life as existing, and then I kind of carve out a space and invite God into it. But I hadn't had the habit, since I was a little girl, of just knowing God was there, that every part of my life was his. And I'm trying to cultivate that. I'm trying to give that to my children. But that's kind of the the thing I most regret about not having this from the start
0: got it and you've been a catholic now almost 10 years or almost 10 years is that right yeah yeah wow
1: if i if i you know were um you know a child the size of my life in catholicism i'd probably be allowed to go walk to school by myself at this point
0: Yeah. wow so uh, the other thing i wanted to ask you about is the sacraments you had read these books and you said okay you knew what was happening at mass did you feel that you had a pretty strong understanding of the sacraments? And, and what did it mean to go to confession? What did it mean to receive the Holy Eucharist for the first time?
1: I mean, to the extent that we can understand something that is a mystery, right? But I, I sure. think yeah. I had a sense, you know, of what just that it was a mystery, you know, what kind of mystery it was, and just the largeness of it. So, you know, going to confession, I both kind of had read moving theological commentaries on it. And then i was still surprised by you know how good it was to go to confession that it was still hard to relinquish the idea that what you do is just feel really bad at god until he forgives you versus you know that we bring our sins in as burdens that he takes away from us yes and that i can't kind of just beat my breast hard enough that it merits forgiveness you know it's all unmerited but the question is whether i'm willing to receive that unmerited forgiveness
0: exactly and then likewise with the holy eucharist how how did that impact you again there are so many people in the church that don't believe in body blood soul and divinity um here you are coming into the church i'm sure just based on everything you said on fire and just really understanding it again as much as you can but taking it very seriously, how was that? Uh, or not even in that moment, just the past 10 years, how has well, that been?
1: I'll say one of the things that's meant the most to me is receiving the Eucharist while I'm pregnant. Um, and that then I'm not only receiving it for myself, but to a certain extent getting to let it spill over to my baby who's part of me. Um, and that that's what I'm called to do all the time, whether I'm pregnant or not, that to receive these graces, which are big enough you know, for me, and in fact, larger than just what I need, that at a certain extent in going forward to receive Christ, he's giving me what I need for someone else, even if I don't know for whom. And I have to carry that out with me from church into the world. And I have to live a life where I'm disposed to accept these graces, because if I'm not, I'm not only denying them to myself, but to other people God wants to work in through me.
0: Very, very well said. Did you have much of a backlash? Were you able to maintain friendships with a a number of atheists? Because I would love, this culture is just getting so divided. I would love to hear stories of people saying, we can still talk about these things. Well,
1: this was one of the big blessings of the debate group which is the weird thing about it is it had a reputation as a Catholic factory that you got people together to spend years trying to figure out what's true and how we know a lot of them became Catholic. Wow. So, in college, I just wasn't the first Catholic convert that lots of people knew. So, to an extent, they'd been softened up or had their Got chance it. to react strongly. But even within that, you know, there were folks who reacted strongly in a way I appreciated. The reaction I hated most was people who said, Oh, you're becoming Catholic. Well, I'm really happy for you. Whatever makes you happy.
0: Yeah.
1: And I'm like, who cares? Who cares if it makes me happy? You know, the question is, that, is it true? It's true? I think it's true. That's why I'm doing it. I'm not doing it to feel nice or, you know, because it's a strong community or because Catholics live a little longer on average than people without a connection to a church. Uh, those would all be terrible reasons to become Catholic. Yeah. And then I had one friend who was an atheist who I realized because of my blog traffic, I'd seen a bunch of incoming links from a site that I was surprised by. So I clicked through who had made a post in a forum saying, how do I stop my friend from becoming Catholic? Uh, And he had said, you know, I'm, you know, I have this friend, she's becoming Catholic, you can kind of read about her reasoning here. I don't think Catholicism is true. I don't want her to do it. You know, I want to think here away from her about how best to approach this, you know, because she's really thought this through. I want good counter arguments that take seriously what she's done to get here. I thought this was very respectful. He was really embarrassed when he realized I'd found it, right? But in some ways, that friend was paying me a much greater compliment and paying the church a much greater compliment than the whatever makes you happy friend, because he acknowledged that the church changes how you live your life. And that if those changes aren't rooted in truth, and if God isn't real, that's a bad way to live your life.
0: Yeah.
1: So, it also really depends on whether it's true. And then he did me the further compliment of you know, thinking, I don't want to just fly off the handle. I really want to think about how best to approach this and to do that. I need a quiet space to think about it, then come back to Leah and really engage her as a friend. And I appreciated that enormously. That was in some ways the best atheist response I got, I felt like.
0: Yeah, when you talk about people saying whatever makes you happy, it's also in the same vein as, oh, I'm glad you found your truth. Your your truth. That just... That's something. Absolutely that, not. Yeah, gets neither look. as
1: an atheist nor as a Catholic was I interested in my truth. Your truth,
0: exactly. The Point of the
1: truth is that it isn't particular
0: to yeah to me. Yeah. So, what else are you working on, Leah? I want to be respectful of your time. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else you want to share with the audience?
1: Yeah. Well, I'm I'm working on trying to raise two Catholic children so far, um, and I, you know, pray that they'll come up and be great saints uh, and that I won't stand in the way of any of the graces God wants to, me to give them as their mother. Excellent. So that's one of my works. And the other one, the most active one at the moment is that substack other feminisms. Okay. And so my focus there really is that we're made to live in relationship with each other. We live in relationships of mutual dependence or sometimes just severe extreme dependence on each other. And that an account of the human person has to start From dependence not autonomy and i'm hoping to help you know foster conversations about what supporting women looks like if you begin with the assumption we can't support each other to total independence it's not achievable and it's not good for us
0: very very good great point leah thank you for that beautiful testimony for agreeing to be on the show Um, everyone, hopefully you enjoyed that episode. If you did share it, like comment and until next time, take care and God bless.